Let's open our Bibles to the 12th chapter of Genesis this evening. Genesis 12. I'm only going to read one verse uh, right here in the beginning. Before I read it, I want to share with you that the nation of Israel has attended the funeral of every nation that's ever risen up against them. For some, it's taken a few hundred years. But for all, eventually, Israel is out there in the crowd at their funeral. What do I mean by that? Well, think of every nation that's risen up against Israel. First in the Bible, Egypt. Egypt was destroyed by the Assyrians. It took 800 years after the Exodus, but they were destroyed. After them, Philistia. Do you remember the Philistines, how they ravaged Israel? There are no Philistines left. You can't find them. The Palestinians may think they're Philistines, but the Philistines are gone. By the time of Alexander the Great, uh, they were destroyed. After Philistia, uh, just think of the nations that surrounded uh, Moab attacked. There's no Moab today. Uh, Edom attacked. There's no Edom left today. You go through uh, the annals of history, and, and I've listed off just the nations I could think of. Amalek, the Amalekites, there are no Amalekites left. They were utterly destroyed by Israel. Syria, and I'm not talking about the, the modern Arab country of Syria. I'm talking about the Syrian the Semitic peoples of Syria, they were totally annihilated uh, after they so ravaged Israel. Assyria, that's Nineveh, that's Jonah, that's, that's the, the whole Assyrian butchering nation that came down and destroyed the top half of Israel. They were so completely destroyed, archaeologists did not know that, that the city of Nineveh really was there. They guessed, but they didn't know until they went down deep enough. God had so fully destroyed Assyria. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, that Babylon, Babylon was totally wiped out, totally. The, the civilization of Babylon was wiped out by the Persians after they decimated Israel. Persia itself, which occupied, and, and uh, uh, that's Haman, and that, that whole crowd that in the book of Esther, Persia, that nation, the ancient nation is gone. Of course, there's a modern Persia, but I'm talking about uh, uh, the ancient nation that rose up against Israel. Rome, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 and again in 135. And yet, a mere 340 years later, Rome fell as the barbarians overran them and wiped out ancient Roman civilization. Germany, remember Germany, what they did in the Holocaust? Do you remember Germany in 1945? Nothing was left. Its cities from Dresden across the industrialized area were lying in ruins because there's a principle, and I just and, and I could go on and on. You know what's happened uh, to many other nations that over the years have risen up and persecuted Israel. But look at chapter 12 of Genesis in verse 3, and it's a simple, simple verse, but a very, very powerful message. And this is what the Lord spoke to Abraham. This is what God Almighty said to Abraham. He said, I will bless those who bless in whatever way you. And I, God Almighty, will curse him who curses you. Now, that's kind of simple. I mean, you don't need a lot of dictionaries. You don't need a lot of, you know, Hebrew glosses and nuances, God just says, 
peoples, individuals, nations that are a blessing to you will be blessed. And those that are a cursing to you, I will curse. That's a fascinating thought. I got an email from a lawyer friend of mine. He, he sent me a study of natural disasters. Now, I got this quite a while ago, but it took me until this week to sit down and look up on the Internet the transcript of, and, you know, I'm, I just use CBS. I don't like CBS. I just use their transcript of the evening news. You know, you can read that, what, the, what they get paid $4 million to read on the air. You can read for free, you know. And so I just looked at his list of these dates that are on your little orange sheet. And I looked at what was going on on October 30th, 1991, and August 23rd, 92, and 94, 97, 98, 98, 99. And, and checked out what was going on in the Middle East and what was going on in the United States. Because I wanted to make sure, because, you know, there, there are a lot of coincidences in life. And I'm not saying that there's, uh, that there's some code or there's some... Uh, um, type of uh, uh, conspiracy going on here that, that uh, uh, by, by just taking various weather reports and overlaying them. But what's fascinating is, what you're going to see here is not minor events, but some of the most catastrophic natural disasters that have ever hit the United States have exactly paralleled the United States' intervention into the affairs of Israel in a negative sense. Let me just share with you a few. Because if you overlay these, uh, the natural disasters in the U.S. against the list of events in Israel, the results are pretty ominous. First of all, October 30th, George Bush Sr. opened on that day. Check it. I mean, check the news. On that day, October 30th, Bush opened the Madrid conference which had the initiative that he brought forward for a Middle East peace plan. It was the first time there was a world uh, conference to trade land for peace. Now, we're going to go in through tonight. I'm going to remind you again. God says, you can't play around with that land. It belongs to me. It doesn't belong to him. It belongs to me. So that's my land, and I'm letting Israel use it, but it's mine. And so when a, a sovereign nation comes along and tells the Nation of Israel, you give up some of the land for peace. It's interesting, especially uh, what God will do to those that force that. Now, this is what's interesting. On October 30th, so I flipped over to the National Weather Service and looked at what was going on in the world that day. And on October 30th, the day before Halloween, uh, 1991, an extremely rare storm, which his books have been written about it and... and, uh, kind of uh, imaginative movies have been made about it. A rare storm formed off the coast of Nova Scotia, which was later tagged the perfect storm, exactly on that day. Now, that's fascinating, but that storm, with record-setting 100-foot-high waves, swept down the coast of New England, and isn't it fascinating that it wiped out the entire ground floor in its path down the coast, of George Bush Sr.'s mansion, Kennebunkport. Now, I know that's an amazing coincidence that the president happened to be off giving away Israel. The biggest ally, supporter, and defender of Israel on the planet right now, other than God, is the United States. And the day that the man who is the chief uh, executive officer of the United States and the, the chief 
a military leader of the United States, a commander-in-chief, he went and told Israel that they are going to give away part of their land to cause peace in the Middle East. On the day that he told them that, the largest recorded Atlantic storm in history swept down the coast with 100-foot high waves and wipes out the first floor of his mansion in Kennebunkport, if you've ever been there. And it caused heavy damage, not only to his home, but a lot of other places. So that's, that's an amazing coincidence. Could be a coincidence. Second one, August 23rd, on your list there, the Madrid conference that, that uh, had started in October the year before, now after 10 months, had moved to Washington, D.C., and the peace talks resumed for four days. And so what happened is it kind of stalled for whatever reason in Madrid, and so Bush said, we got to get this thing cranked up. So he brings it to come to Washington, D.C. On the very same day, August 23rd, 1992, the, the day that, that they jump-started and cranked up and restarted the, the giveaway of the land to make peace in Israel, on the very same day that it started, the largest, worst, most expensive disaster ever to hit America struck the very same day. That's another amazing coincidence. It was Hurricane Andrew producing, as according to the insurers, an estimated $30 billion in damage. And if you remember the news, 180,000 people were left homeless just in that hurricane sweeping across, if you remember, uh, the Miami area. And the hurricane and the disaster uh, almost paralleled you know, as the, as the hurricane formed and came across and continued, and you remember it swept around the Gulf for a little while, it lasted the same four days as the Washington, D.C., Madrid, too. Very interesting. Well, a couple years passed. On January 16, 1994, new president, uh, same ideas, President uh, Clinton initiates a meeting with Syria, I remember a few weeks back I shared with you uh, that, that the scriptures describe a future event when uh, it's not Armageddon, it's not, it's not Gog and Magog, it's just a local uh, kind of a neighboring country attack on Israel. Uh, Psalm 83 describes it, uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah describe it. Um, it just says in those verses that the nations touching, literally the Hebrew word says touching. Now, there are only so many countries that touch Israel. Lebanon touches it. Syria touches it. Jordan touches it. Down across the Gulf of Aqaba, Saudi Arabia touches it. Jordan uh, borders it a long way, and Egypt touches it. So, I mean, there are only those nations that touch Israel. And it says, the Hebrew word is, the nations that touch Israel will attack her. And in that process, it says that Damascus, I mean Damascus, there's only one Damascus in the world. It's one of the most continuously inhabited cities in the world. Uh, some put it at 8,000 years. The caravanseries have been operating up there where all the desert traffic has stopped in Damascus. And Damascus has never been destroyed. It's been conquered uh, countless times. Never destroyed because it's so valuable. It's an oasis. It's in the middle of the desert. But both Jeremiah and Isaiah says that Damascus is totally destroyed and will never be re-inhabited, and it says it melts. It's interesting. It says the walls of Damascus burn and melt. 
in this regional conflict. So Syria seems to be a, a, an adversary coming against Israel. I mean, even today, I mean, today, uh, Syria is, is, is doing stuff today. I mean, they're allowing Iranian planes to land in Damascus, and they've brought hundreds of tons of missiles and uh, all kinds of things in from Iran, and they're trucking them in Syria down to Lebanon and lining the border of Israel with all this armaments. In fact, last month they set up short-range missiles. And so Syria is not a friend by any means, wasn't in the past. That ancient Syria is gone. The modern Syria is no friend. So the president of Syria, then now the late Hafez al-Assad, that's the current Assad's um, father, was invited by Clinton on January 16th to sit down in a neutral place, Geneva, you know, kind of the world UN meeting place in the peace center of the world, Geneva, to sit down and talk about Israel giving up the Golan Heights. If you know anything about 94, there was a, a great movement that Syria would stop being an antagonist if they could get back that little part that, that Israel conquered in 1973 at great cost of human life during the Yom Kippur War, that, that they would give that up. Now, remember, the Golan Heights is the mountain ridge that is right over the top of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, we take groups up there. When you stand on the Golan Heights, you can see cars driving along the Sea of Galilee. I mean, and you... I am no hunter or anything, but I could, with a rifle, shoot at the cars from the top because, I mean, they're just sitting ducks. And so that's where Syria was on, from 1948 to 1973, and they daily would shoot mortars and machine guns and everything else they could throw down on the Israelis who lived and farmed and settled around the Sea of Galilee. And so Clinton had the bright idea to give that back to Assyria. So he met all day with uh, Syria's president, Hafez al-Assad, in Geneva, and they talked about this peace agreement. They worked out the details, and at the end of that day, their, their meetings were over by 7.30 in Geneva. And 7.30 in Geneva, if you look at your little map in the phone book that shows all the time zones, 7.30 in Geneva, Switzerland, is 4.30 a.m., on the U.S. West Coast. And at exactly 4.30 a.m. in Los Angeles, a powerful 6.9 on the Richter scale earthquake shook a brand new fault under Northridge. I mean, it's always been there, but I mean, one that they haven't heard from recently. Rocked Southern California. This quake centered in Northridge, and it was the second most destructive natural disaster ever to hit the United States, right after the first one, which George Bush Sr. Uh, had during his initial give-away-the-land thing. So the Northridge quake, 4.30 a.m., Los Angeles time, January 16, 1994, exactly coincidentally coincided with the ending of the meeting to give away the Golan Heights between President Bill Clinton and the Syrian dictator Hafez al-Assad. Very interesting coincidence. Well, three years later, on March 1st of 1997, the United States extended an invitation to the, the most infamous terrorist in the world that's alive today. The man who's credited with 
killing more people in terrorist attacks than anyone else, the man that's, that's infamous for having more planes hijacked at one time than anybody else, someone that's infamous for killing more children with terrorist bombs than any other terrorist has, the man that's infamous for having more hostages at gunpoint at one time than anybody. I mean, this guy has won every record in the book. He has had more hostages. He's had more people killed. He's had more planes hijacked. And he's killed more school children than any other terrorist in modern history. And he was invited to come to the United States on March 1st by Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. And on March 1st, through the first week of April in 1997, the PLO chairman, Yasser Arafat, the most notorious and well-known terrorist alive on the planet, toured America with the Secretary of State at times and with the president himself. Went all over. And you ought to read the. I mean, I took out the whole month of CBS News reports to read it. You ought to read it. This is not, this is not Bible prophecy, you know, uh, conspiracy websites. I just get CBS, pick up March of 1997, read the, the headers that uh, whoever the CBS news guy is, uh, rather, I think, uh, read the headers he covered each night. It's amazing for that time period. Now, it's just a coincidence, but uh, one night there were 12 monster tornadoes on the ground at the same time sweeping from Tennessee all the way through Virginia. Twelve on the ground at the same time, just ravaging that whole, that whole area. It's interesting, the whole time from March 1st through the first week of April, while Arafat was, was asking for donations to help his terrorist organization, which is called the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and Clinton was publicly in newscasts, if you read the CBS thing, he was publicly rebuking our ally, Israel, because they weren't giving away their land fast enough for peace. During that six-week period, some of the worst tornadoes and some of the most amazing flooding in U.S. history occurred. And you can read it in the CBS News report. On the very day that Arafat landed on American soil, those 12 tornadoes devastated huge sections of the nation, some ripping across Texas, some in Arkansas, some in Mississippi, some in Kentucky, some in Tennessee, going toward Virginia. Arafat's American tour continued. And I know it's a coincidence, and that is tornado season. But isn't it amazing that his tour, as it continued, the storms started in the Dakotas. Do you remember the flooding of the Mississippi? I mean, the greatest flooding they've ever seen. Do you remember how... It was on the news. I mean, you couldn't even see. It just was miles wide. The Mississippi floods in, in the greatest flooding that they'd ever seen. And the worst flooding of this century, in addition to weeks of major storms throughout the Midwest, finally, Yasser Arafat, who never got in any of the storms, uh, finishes his tour and leaves the United States. And if you notice... In the CBS, you just read, and I'm not partial to CBS, but, you know, they all lie, and they all lie equally, and so you just use equal lies. And so if you look at the equal lying in the news, Arafat is sent off by Madeleine Albright just the first week of April, and the rains in the Dakotas stop, the flooding begins to subside, and tornado season is over. It, it, you know, it's another amazing coincidence. The fifth event, on January 21st, 1998, 
the then president of, or the, the prime minister, I mean, of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, meets at the White House with President Clinton. And Clinton rebuffs him, is cold, and refuses to have an official state lunch. So Netanyahu comes over here to meet with Clinton, and Clinton gives him the cold shoulder. He secretly meets with him. He will not have a public face-to-face meeting with him, will not have lunch with him. The Secretary of State, here's a world leader of our number one ally in the world. I mean, uh, someone that that helps us constantly with our uh, technology studies for our defense, Israel, and they wouldn't have lunch with him. And on that very same day, if you remember from history, January 21st, 1998, is the day the news media carries for the first time the Monica Lewinsky scandal on the same day. Now, I think that one is a coincidence because who would want to meet with Israel when you know all that's going on? But I think it's amazing that the day that Clinton turns his back on Israel, the media begins to so cover the Lewinsky scandal that Clinton's time is totally eroded from then till the end of his presidency with the constant, endless scandals. Well, on September 27, 1998, same year, Madeleine Albright, our Secretary of State at that time, worked out the final details of an agreement in which Israel would give up 13% of their land, give up one-seventh of Israel. Okay, on that same day, September 27, 1998, Hurricane George slams into the Gulf Coast, 175 mile an hour winds, and the hurricane hits the coast on the 27th and stays there. Just remember how they stall and they just keep flooding. The next day, Clinton met with Arafat and Netanyahu in the White House to finalize the land deal. Arafat addresses the U.N. about declaring an independent Palestinian state by May. Hurricane George revs up and causes a billion dollars of damage in the Gulf Coast area. And the day that Arafat left the United Nations, gets on an airplane and starts flying across the Atlantic back to his terrorist hangout, the, the hurricane absolutely dissipated and it turned into rainstorms. It did not regather steam over the Gulf, which is interesting. On October 15th, just two weeks later, 1998, the Y River Plantation, if you know anything about Israel, you know the Y River Accords and all that, in Maryland, starts up the talks, which had broken off on September 28th, Hurricane George. Uh, and so on October 15th, they get back to five days. Do you remember it was in the news? I mean, you saw Clinton and you saw Netanyahu and you saw Arafat, and they were all smiling, they had their arms around each other. It was a big event. A five-day marathon in which they finally had gotten within sight of giving up one-seventh of Israel back as for peace, give it back to the Palestinians. The talks are extended and they keep going, you remember? On October 17th, uh, that's the second day of the conference to give away Israel, uh, there's a huge storm that cuts across southern Texas. The San Antonio area is, is drowned with 20 inches of rain in one day. 
The floods continue until October 22nd, and one-fourth of Texas is a major disaster area. And October 21st, in the middle of this whole giveaway Israel thing, Clinton declares Texas a major disaster area. And, of course, Y River breaks off. Do you remember they never came to any agreement, and they couldn't give away the land? On May 3rd, the day that... Now, this is the last date right there on your list, and we all know this date in Oklahoma. On May 3rd, 1999, the day in Israel that Yasser Arafat has declared he will declare a Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital. That's the day that all of the United Nations and all the Arab League and all the Palestinian and all of America's pro-Palestinian people uh, had decided was the day to declare Jerusalem the capital of the Palestinian state when Arafat said Palestinians have a right to determine their own future on their own land, they deserve to live free today, tomorrow, and forever, on the same day as that declaration was declared to begin to take place, when they were going to take possession and do all the stuff, at 447 here in Tulsa, the most powerful tornado storm system ever to be recorded swept across Oklahoma and Kansas, and with 316-mile-per-hour winds, Oklahoma City and all those lives were devastated. On the day that Yasser Arafat, with Bill Clinton's full support, and with all of the State Department's support, and with all of the United States political machinery behind it, had stood with Yasser Arafat, to declare Jerusalem to belong, not to God's people, but to the sons of Ishmael. Well, that was delayed, uh, I don't think, because of the tornado. I don't think Arafat even knew about the tornado, but they put it off till December, um, and then it still never happened. Look back at Genesis 12:3 again, and uh, I just want to continue with uh, a little study in the Bible, because... You know, the weather doesn't matter, but the Bible does, and these truths do. I will bless those that bless thee, verse 3 says, and him that curseth thee I will curse, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The scriptures simply say a nation that harms Israel either sooner or later will be harmed. I think that if America continues its course this weekend, the United States joined with the other industrialized nations saying that Israel needs to allow foreign observers, an, a foreign military force, to begin moving in to, to stop the Israeli aggression, which is an even more uh, disastrous event to get international military involved is going to be amazing. Well, why is all this happening? Now in your notes, let's just catch up and we'll finish in the last few minutes we have. God has made an unbreakable promise with Abraham and thus with Abraham's descendants, Israel. The unbreakable promise that God gave to Abraham was a people that he would have a, a, a never-ending descent of, of his blood descendant, his bloodline, the the children of Abraham, the Israelite people, he would bless them and he would give them a land. And we have already gone through these points, and I'm going to um, uh, pick up 
at the beginning. Number one, God picked his chosen people of destiny in the scriptures. Uh, they are the Jews. They are descendants of Abraham called Israel. Now, Abraham had several sons, but two main sons are in the news all the time. Abraham had his son of an Egyptian wife, Hagar, called Ishmael. And he had his son of a Semitic wife, a, a uh, descendant of Shem. Now, remember, Hagar is a descendant of Ham. And Ham, through Canaan, is cursed. And that, that wife and that son, God said, cannot be my heirs, Ishmael, the Ishmaelites. But that son, Isaac, is my choice. And so all of history is about Ishmael and Isaac fighting. Fighting. You see him in the news today, fighting. The Arab-Israeli conflict. Number two, God presented a land to his chosen people of destiny, and we've gone through all those verses, the Jews, with clearly defined boundaries. And that we studied at length. Number three, God brought, he proceeded to bring his chosen people to the promised land. Number four, God pronounced a curse on them because they were unfaithful, but they were still his chosen people of destiny, and they wandered the world without their promised land. And you remember with the, with the great dispersion by the Romans in A.D. 70, Israel was sent to the furthest ends of the earth. They hadn't been sent that far in the Babylonian and Persian captivity. They were, as we saw last time we were together, within the 120 provinces of Persia. And when Haman's edict came out, when the Amalekites, Agagites, the, the unfaithful son of, of Benjamin, Saul, when he did not kill Agag, Agag's family survived. They show up 500 years later, and they, through Haman, were ready to destroy all the Jews. And, of course, God did the great deliverance that's in the book of Esther. But... Israel was in a localized area then. They were in the 120 provinces of the Persian Empire, but the Romans sent them to the furthest ends of the earth because the Roman Empire was so widespread. Deuteronomy 24 or 28:64 says this. Uh, Deuteronomy 28:64 says, "The Lord will scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even to the other." And at present, I think the UN says there are 160 some nations in the earth. Today, there are Jews registered as citizens in Israel from over 100 nations. There are not citizens of any other country on the planet from 100 different nations other than the one nation God says in Deuteronomy 28:64, I will scatter you, my people, among all the people from one end of the earth to the other. So God pronounced this curse. And God promised the children of Israel great blessings and land of promise if they remain faithful. But he predicted great suffering, persecution, and worldwide dispersion if they forsook him. And God says that they would be a proverb, a byword, a curse, and a reproach. And they were up until 1948. Number five, God preserved his chosen people from annihilation. God declared that in spite of persecution, the periodic wholesale slaughter of Jews, he would not let his chosen people be destroyed. He would preserve them as an identifiable ethnic national group. A verse, if you want to jot it there, is Jeremiah 30 and verse 11. Number five, that was where we stopped last time. This is what Jeremiah says. Uh, records God saying, I'm with you, I will save you, declares the Lord, though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you. God scattered them to Egypt, he destroyed Egypt. God scattered them to Babylon, he destroyed Babylon. God dis scattered them to Assyria, he destroyed Assyria. God scattered them to Persia, he destroyed Persia. God scattered them to the Roman Empire, he destroyed the Roman Empire. He said, though I, Jeremiah 30, 11, 
destroy the nations among whom I scatter you. Here's the key. I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, Jeremiah 30 and verse 11, but only with justice. I will not let you go unpunished, but I will not completely destroy you. God said, I'm going to preserve you, and he did. Well, number six, and in that little blank, you can fill this in. God promised to regather his chosen people. So God promised to regather. Okay, that's what goes on that little blank under number six. His chosen people of destiny back to the promised land. And the Bible declares that God determined to keep his chosen people separated to himself. They never got absorbed. And that's the amazing thing. They never absorbed among the people they found themselves living. It would have been inevitable so that no trace of the Jews as a distinct people should have remained today. These people, for 2,500 years, have been basically scattered across the known world and the last 2,000 years scattered to the furthest ends of the planet. In fact, right now, this weekend, the government of Israel has set up military recruitment centers for Jewish soldiers. Did you read that in the news? Did you notice what cities? If we were having a war, where would we recruit people? Tulsa, Atlanta, Denver. Where are they? Where is Israel recruiting soldiers? Johannesburg. Read the newspaper. Uh, The Buenos Aires, um, Bombay, um, France, New York. Did you read the papers? Across the globe, the Israeli government has sent plane loads of recruiters to sign up soldiers to come back because I think Psalm 83 is getting close. The attack on Jerusalem is coming, and they know it. And they are starting to recruit soldiers. They expect to get 100,000 soldiers from those recruitment centers, from South Africa, from India, from Argentina. Well, since the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, Jews have lived distinctive ethnic identities across the world for 2,500 years. Well, here are some verses. Let's look up Isaiah 11, 11. And if you want to turn there, uh, these are great ones to mark. Uh, they, they encourage my heart, and I think they'll encourage yours. I love to see parts of the Bible that come true, okay? And so Isaiah 11, 11, it says this. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. Now, the first time that God set his hand to bring back the children of Israel was after the Babylonian captivity. And and we all know that because it's one of the most beloved parts of the Bible. It's the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those three books are the first time God sets his hand to bring his people back. And the likes of the people that go back to Israel are the people we love. Uh, Simeon and Anna and, and Joseph and Mary were descendants of the people that returned to Israel the first time God set his hand to bring them back. They came back with Zerubbabel. They came back with Ezra. Uh, Nehemiah encouraged them to, to rebuild the walls in 52 days. Haggai encouraged them to rebuild the temple in Zerubbabel's time. And so that's the first time. But look what it says in Isaiah. And it shall come to pass in that day the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. The second time. Very important verse. The first time, as I said, was when he brought them back from the Babylonian captivity. Continuing in Isaiah. To recover the remnant of his people which shall be left and shall assemble the outcasts, verse 12, of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The first time he regathered them, they weren't on the four corners of the earth. They were in the 120 provinces of old Babylon, which became Persia. 
And Cyrus wrote a decree, and Nehemiah got permission, and they even got the salt and the lumber from the Persian treasury, and they rebuilt the city and the temple and started the sacrifices back. But God says they're going to be scattered after that first regathering, after the Babylonian, after Daniel and Ezekiel and all that, which was after the time of Christ, which was A.D. 70, which is a monumental day in history when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. He said, they will be dispersed to the four corners of the earth, and they were. Jews found themselves as slaves in Britain, in France, in Spain, in Germany. They found themselves as slaves in what is modern-day Russia, which was part of of the Roman Empire, in what is modern-day Persia, in what is modern-day India. They found themselves in Africa as slaves of the Roman Empire. And they lived there, distinctly Jewish. And they were in the four corners of the earth. And so it says in Isaiah 11, 11, I will set my hand a second time, sometime after A.D. 70. And the follow-up of A.D. 70, 135 A.D., when Hadrian actually totally leveled. I mean, Titus left part of Jerusalem standing. Hadrian finished it off 70 years, or 65 years later. But after those two Roman destructions, God says after that, sometime after the second century A.D., sometime in the future, I promise, God says, I promise, I'm going to put my hand into countries all over the world, and I'm going to make my people come home. When did that happen? That happened in the lifetime of some of you that are sitting here tonight. The younger people, it's nothing. We don't know anything about it. If you lived around World War II, the saga of the return of the Jews to their land brings tears to the eyes of those that saw it. The hardship, the adversity, the death that they braved to go back, and they didn't even know why, and it continues to this day. Here's another one, Jeremiah, the next book. You're in Isaiah 11. Turn over to Jeremiah 30 in verse 10. Jeremiah 30 and verse 10 says this, So do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Don't be dismayed, O Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you, this is future, prophetic, out of a distant place. Your descendants from the land of their exile, Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. When Jeremiah wrote that, Israel was in the land. So he's talking about a future event. Isaiah's already said it's going to be after the Jews are sent to the four corners, which was A.D. 70. And Jeremiah says at a future date, Israel will be a recognized sovereign nation again in security in their land. Next chapter, look at Jeremiah 31, verse 8. See, God says, I, God Almighty, will bring them from the land of the north. By the way, in the last 10 years, 1.1 million, million. That's that's the whole population of of San Diego. I mean, can you imagine putting San Diego on an airplane and flying them somewhere? 1.1 million Russian Jews have been flown to Israel. 250, 300, 500 at a time on airplanes. Can you imagine that? Totally at the expense of the Israeli government. 
and they have been given a little tiny two, three hundred square foot little room to live in with their family. And, and we see them every time we go to Israel, and they are the happiest people in the world. They are home. When they get there, they get off the airplane, and they put their faces down, and they kiss the ground, and kiss the ground, and kiss the ground. They get to Jerusalem, they kiss the stone walks of Jerusalem, and they are home. God says, look at what verse 8 says, I will bring them from the land of the north. I will gather them from the ends of the earth. They just found a group of people in India, up in the Himalayan region, a group of people in India, soon to be the most populous nation on earth. They're going to overtake China in the next 30 years if the Lord doesn't return at their population, current growth, if you're studying that at all. India, the most densely populated spot on the planet, they found a group of Jews practicing Judaism in the Himalayan region, nestled away, and that's what Israel is constantly doing. They have agents everywhere looking for pockets, and they're going to airlift those people back to Israel. But they look just like Indians, but they are, they are part of this scattering that went of the Jewish people in the Roman dispersion. They became slaves, and now they've, they've lived off there in Himalayan. It's fascinating. Continuing, it says, Among them will be the blind, the lame, expectant mothers, women in labor. A great throng will return. 1.1 million from Russia alone. Verse 9, they will come with weeping. If you watch the, the documentaries, they do. They will pray as I bring them back, and you ought to see them praying. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path. They will not stumble because I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. That would be here in America. He who scattered Israel will gather them and watch over his flock like a shepherd. You know, there's a verse in the Psalms that says, He that watches over Israel neither slumbers or sleeps. Right? That's a famous verse. You know, last week, Israel launched, pre, ahead of schedule, prematurely, the nation said, uh, not one, but two spy satellites. They're called OFEC 5 and 5A. Israel, remember the Jews that were thrown out of Germany, are the ones that, that did the Manhattan Project in America. Albert Einstein, Oppenheimer, all of those are Jews, German Jews. Some of the greatest, more Nobel Prize winners are Jews than the other group. I mean, they're, they are blessed by God with brilliance. But those Jews have taken satellite technology and developed satellites that are so miniature and so powerful that they sometimes have to teach America a few things. We think we're so smart. But they sent up in one rocket two satellites this week, actually last week, and those two satellites crisscross and give them 24-hour surveillance of Iran, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, you know, the gang, <laughs> you know, they're the, the people that bother them. And they're, they're, they're constantly at 60 miles up giving them 24-hour reconnaissance. Now, if we tried to do that, it would take us $100 billion, you know, in five years. But they decided things were warming up. And so they just got their satellites up there. But, you know, they're trusting in their technology, and they have a spy in the sky right now that they don't even acknowledge. God says, I, who watch over Israel, watch them 24 hours a day. And you hurt them, I'll hurt you. Maybe not immediately. I don't, you know, I won't slap you right away, but don't mess with me. Well, Look at Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Okay, 36, and I, I, you should have this underlined, but I want to underline it again. We have four minutes left uh, and, and several verses. 
But Ezekiel 36, 24 says, I will take you out of the nations. This is a future time. This is the second regathering. As, as Isaiah 11 says, it's sometime that, that was after the first century, after the second century. It happened to have occurred in the 20th century. Uh, read your history books. Nobody can deny it. I will take you out of the nations, it says in verse 24. I will gather you from all the countries. I will bring you back into your own land. Now, where is that? Do you know what the United Nations offered Israel? They offered them, was it Angola or was it the Congo I, or Uganda? It was Uganda. The UN said in the 40s, they said, you know, there's a lot of tension about Jerusalem and it doesn't matter, all land is equal. We will let Israel have an independent state in Uganda. Isn't that interesting? God says, no, no, I'm going to put you back, verse 24, in your land. What land is that? The land, point one. Uh, chosen people of destiny, point two, clearly defined boundaries. God says, I'm going to put you back there, even if the whole world doesn't like it. Look at verse 35. They will say, this land was laid waste. Became, it became like the Garden of Eden. The cities were lying in ruins, desolate, destroyed. They are now fortified and inhabited. That has happened in our lifetime. And it's never happened in 2,500 years. It happened in the last 50 years. Not quite my lifetime, but almost in the lifetime of some of you. Right now, the largest supplier of citrus and flowers to the European community is the postage stamp size nation of Israel. There are flights every day of fresh cut flowers and of, of exotic citrus fruit. It's like the Garden of Eden over in Israel. It's amazing. Some of the finest grapes, some of the finest citrus, some of the finest everything. It's like the Garden of Eden. And those cities, verse 35 says, were lying in ruins. They were desolate and destroyed. They're fortified and inhabited. In fact, uh, just as a note, four weeks ago, Russia, which is Russia, they're very smart over there, they developed the SA-300 anti-aircraft uh, missiles, which is very similar to a Star Wars kind of thing. They can actually shoot down not only airplanes. They're so fast and so advanced, but they can shoot down missiles, kind of like our Patriot deal, only it works. And so the Russians, though, can't afford it. Russia can't afford it. They have a few around the Kremlin, but they can't afford to field their own weaponry because they're so impoverished. And so they're selling them to the Arabs as fast as they can. And of course, you know who wants to get a copy so they can figure it out and, and, and uh, disable it? The Jews. And so they got the Bosnians to order it. You know, the Muslim, the Bosnians. And so they gave 20 million or something to Russia. And Russia shipped down, but the Bosnians said, we want it to come through Athens. And so Russia shipped it around through, you know, the Black Sea and got it down to Athens where the Israelis took delivery and shipped it right into Haifa. And after they had totally taken it apart, figured it out, and put it back together and copied it, they announced that they had the SA-300. And so it's amazing what God lets them do. Verse 37, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel. I will do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep as numerous as the flocks offering in Jerusalem during the appointed feast. So the ruined cities will be filled with flocks of people, and they will know that I'm the Lord then. Now, that hasn't happened. They don't acknowledge him yet. There's a growing group that do. What's amazing is the fastest growing part of Israel are the observant Jews. They are having, the ones you're reading about in the papers that are getting shot as they take their kids to school, they're called settlers. They're the observant Jews. They are having families of eight, 10, 12, 14, 16 children, and they are growing so fast it's scaring the Arabs. The wealthy, liberal, unbelieving Jews, 
believe in one child, you know, kind of the save the money for me and don't spend it on the kids idea. And they are declining. But the religious, observant, Bible-reading, yarmulke-wearing, Western Wall-rocking Jews with the dreadlocks, those people are multiplying so fast that they are going to dominate the nation. But the problem is they do not serve in the military. And they don't work. They farm. So there's a crisis coming. Okay, Ezekiel 36, uh, or 37, let me just give you two more verses. Ezekiel 37, 21, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them to their own land. Ezekiel 37, 21. And then here's the last one, Hosea. So keep going, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, chapter 3. Hosea 3, and this is fascinating. When uh, Dave Hunt was uh, in town uh, last year, he, he just had... This, he talked about how he just discovered this verse and thought it was so neat. But look at Hosea 3, 4, and 5. It says this, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. What is that? That's point number six. God has promised to regather his chosen people. What's next? Well, when we get together next time, what is holding back the process? Why hasn't the Lord returned? Why is not the tribulation in full bloom? What is going on? There's something interesting. Jesus said that he will not return until the times of the Gentiles are over. 